today on Ag News Daily. The ground truthing we're really doing is, is, is I, w- I like to say calibrated, but we're really taking a, a ground truth sample of what's happening. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here, joined by co-host Delaney Howell for today's edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney, how you doing? I am pretty good today, Mike. How about you? You feeling a little better today? You know, I'm feeling a lot better. I've got, uh, you know, enough uh, voice back to be you know, effective, which is fun. And, uh, you know, I'm feeling good. You're feeling good. Just in time for the holidays. Of course. So, Delaney, what is new in the world of agriculture? Well, Mike, it seems that we have gotten a fix on the USMCA issues that I mentioned on the podcast yesterday. Jesus Sierra, Mexico's top negotiator, was in Washington, D.C. this week meeting with Representative Lighthizer and told reporters yesterday that Mexico is now satisfied with the new promises that Robert Lighthizer promised him and that Mexico would not be conducting inspections at factories to evaluate the improvement of labor standards. And so he said these personnel will not be labor inspectors. It seems that Mexico is happy on that front. The question that I have now, though, is are we going to see the Senate and or House? I I guess I don't know. Can they backtrack on a vote? Uh, yeah, our Senate? Yeah. I don't think so. Once it's been voted on, it's done. It's done okay. deal. Well, they, can, they can present it again and vote on perhaps an amendment. Gotcha. But no, the the deal's done. Everybody's a bit late to this party. Sorry, Mexico. It You know, it is what it is. Yes, it seems that is the case. But Mexico, so it, the way it sounds to me is the U.S. will not be creating five new attaches to send to Mexico. And that was part of the concern that CIA had. So I'm not sure what this changes for, I guess, the House who is concerned about labor enforcement is my question. I I guess all of this will get sorted out later. You know, I guess I'm not really sure. Maybe they'll put this into the Senate version. Mm-hmm. And since that hasn't been voted on yet, and then they'll try to do a reconciliation process afterwards. I, yeah, I, I, I have no idea. Mexico, they should have read this thing before they voted to pass it. Yeah, you'd think they would have done that, right? Yeah, you'd think. Uh, Well, guess not. Right. Well, speaking of crazy things going through Congress, we have the omnibus legislation that is expected to pass here shortly to fund the government going forward and snuck in amongst the various uh, whatever things they're voting on is the renewal for the biodiesel tax credit. Uh, This has been very welcome by the biodiesel industry has been struggling, as we've noted on the podcast, quite a bit since the beginning of 2018 when this tax uh, credit was rescinded. Um, The proposal in the omnibus would reinsert the tax credit at the dollar per gallon subsidy through 2022. So it would effectively buy two years for the biodiesel industry. They're very excited, and it certainly sounds as though this omnibus spending package will get voted through with this, uh, you know, snuck in right along beside it. So good news there for our friends in the biodiesel industry. Other good news that Congress voted on today, besides that biodiesel tax credit, Mike, is another disaster relief package for farmers. They adopted the 
fiscal budget for 2020, which includes an additional $1.5 billion in disaster relief funding for those farmers hit by this year's bad weather, which is on top of the $3 billion that they already passed back in June. Mm. So don't know, don't have really any other details yet about who will be uh, receiving this money, but I suspect it would be the same people that received part of the $3 billion disaster aid package. Yeah, I would imagine you're correct about that. But one more thing that's been passed this week. So I think now, as far as I understand, the 2020 fiscal year budget is passed or is done, so we won't have a government shutdown. Well, did they did they pass the omnibus already, um, or are they I, just are, is the voting later on? You might be right. The voting might be later on. Well, I, let me look. Let's just take a look. Yeah, okay. You take a look. The internet has the solution, perhaps. <laughs> well, let's see. And I don't see a vote schedule. So I'll keep looking later. What other news okay. do you have? Well, we saw a boat happen last week in Great Britain. The UK elected Prime Minister Boris Johnson, as I mentioned on the podcast before, and it seems that they are already having trade talks between the UK and President Trump about moving forward on a bilateral agreement. As I mentioned last week after the elections happened, uh, Boris Johnson is largely in favor of getting the Brexit deal completed sooner rather than later. And so it sounds like President Trump is ready to gear up some bilateral trade talks there as soon as that happens. All right. Well, you know, that's been discussed for some time, so it's not surprising to hear that they have already been in discussions. Now we'll just have to see what happens with Brexit before that deal can move forward. Yes, we will. Well, let's go across the Pacific Ocean to China. I've got a couple China-related stories for us. The first is that earlier today, China announced they will sell 40,000 tons of frozen pork from their state reserves on Thursday. Um, this is their, their most recent move to ensure supplies, because coming up is the Lunar New Year holiday in China, and that is a huge consumption date of pork in that country. Um, they are going to, let's see, market it, and it'll just be a, just a regular state auction like they usually do for this type of deal. Oh, excuse me, I need to work coffee. I believe this is the second sale of frozen pork from the Chinese reserves. Well, I actually have another piece of Chinese pork news as well. This is a little bit more of an editorial piece, but it's a great piece. I'm going to share it in this week's Global Ag Network newsletter, so do go sign up for that if you're interested in reading this article. But it's on Bloomberg, and it's just two weeks old here, but I just came across it today. It's called China's Mutant Pigs Could Help Save Nation from Pork Apocalypse. And so basically this article is talking about that because of African swine fever here, they've really ramped up their research going on in China and have inserted genes or DNA into pigs that make them a lot more hardy to global warming, a lot more hardy to extreme temperatures, hypothermia, able to regulate their heat and buffer them against northern China's hypothermia-inducing winters in hopes to really ramp up their hog herd here over the past couple of years. So you think about what China has been focused on from a pork standpoint, pork production standpoint, for the past couple of years, their quest really was for better tasting, stronger and faster growing swine. And now it seems 
that they are transitioning to really focusing more on safeguarding their food security and keeping hogs alive. Yeah, yeah, you know, when we talked, gosh, I think it was a couple of months ago about the the genetic moves that China's been making to try to grow uh, hogs the size of polar bears. Yes, that's right. We did talk about that. So this definitely is in keeping with that uh, Chinese government focus on spending for quantity, maybe not necessarily quality of pork, as, as you mentioned. Yes, it's just fascinating, though. Well, let's see. We've got some other news, one final piece of news out of China, at least. And this is coming back to uh, the Ministry of Ag and Rural Affairs in China. They are talking again about their efforts to step up support for the country's smaller pig farms. Um, Basically, what they're doing is they're setting up agreements between corporate farmers and local governments to help those small farmers manage some of their risk when it comes to restocking their hog operations. Uh, Effectively, they're trying to encourage these large farmers to look at a system similar to what we have in the U.S., where they're going to contract raise pork with smaller uh, growers. Uh, the idea is it's going to more inc- encourage the geographic spread of hogs around the country. It's going to keep those small farmers in business, and it's going to allow the large hog operators with their better genetics, perhaps their better biosecurity protocols, to get more hogs into production more quickly. And so this is uh, uh, Mr. Wang, who is with the MAG of Ag the Ministry of Ag and Rural Affairs said, quote, if you partner up with big-scale farmers, you solve your problem and also the big producer's problem. And that's what they're trying to encourage in China, it sounds like, going forward. All right. Well, Mike, the only other piece of news I had for today is leading right into the markets here. We're already looking at acreage for 2020. And one of the big cuts we could see in acres next year and be a continued Market Monday conversation we have with analysts coming up, but one of the big dips, I guess, in production we could see, according to cotton analysts, is the cotton acreage. We saw a record planting of about 14 million acres planted in 2019, or and 2018 was also a big year of cotton too, but in 2020, they are expecting to see cotton acres dip quite a bit to 11 million acres because of the wild cards still with China and just prices have not been where they need to be for those folks to push production any further. Mm, okay. Well, you know, it has been incredible to watch that growth of cotton acreage, not just in the southeast, but across the southern Great Plains as cotton has crawled its way up into Oklahoma. It makes sense. We're, we're probably due for a pullback. I think it does as well. And Mike, did we have a pullback today in the markets? Well, we do not really have a pullback. Actually, it's been kind of a kind of a mixed trade day in the markets. The grains are up a little bit. We've seen livestock trading both sides of unchanged. And uh, let's just jump into it, see where we closed up for the day. Delaney, what do you think? Let's do it. All right. And we've got green in the grain. Continuing yesterday's rally, the March corn contract was up two cents at 390 even. The May up one and three quarters at 396 and a half. Rally continued and strengthened a little bit in the soybean market. Jan contract was up six and three quarters at 928 and three quarters. The March up four and three quarters to close the day at 940 and three quarters. In Chicago wheat, the March was up six and a half, finished at 556 and a quarter. May up seven and three quarters to close the day at 559 even. Looking over at livestock, we've got 
got the weakness today in live cattle. December contract was down seven and a half cents at one twenty two twenty two fifty. February down ninety five, finished at one twenty six thirty. In feeder cattle, the January contract dropped ten cents to close at one forty five fifteen. March up twelve and a half, finishing at one forty five seventy two and a half. And in lean hogs, February down sixty five cents at sixty nine eighty five. The April down a nickel, closed the day at seventy seven. 40. Looking over at the dairy market in Class 3 milk that December was down another penny at 1938, while January continued yesterday's losses, dropped 38 cents on the day to finish at 1697. Without further ado, let's kick it off to today's interview. Well, for today's Hashtag Tech Tuesday interview, we are joined by two great gentlemen, Alex Whitley, who is the Managing Director of Arva Intelligence and Matt Rollick, who is the Managing Director of Farms and Strategic Partnerships for Arva Intelligence. Alex, I want to ask you first, tell us the 10,000-foot view. What is Arva Intelligence? Well, thanks for uh, having us on here, and um, I'll share with you what we do. So, Arva, on the highest level possible, uh, we bring farmers the power of machine learning, which we'll talk about uh, in this, I'm sure, uh, inside the farm gate to significantly improve economics and soil health. Um, what our machine learning engine does is it guides seed fertilizer and biological companies to develop their products faster, uh, deliver proof of e efficacy of their products, um, increase yield, manage risk, and um, getting into sustainability quantification. All right, so let's talk a little bit more in detail. Let's get into this machine learning. Alex, what, what does that mean uh, for, for a company? What, what, I guess, data go into the machine to help it learn? That is a great question, and that is what we're setting out to do. Matt and I have both been in this industry for our entire careers, uh, along with um, most everyone at Arbit Intelligence, um, and you'll see that come through in, in what we're doing. Um, working all the way, uh, you know, at the top OEMs all the way to the farm gate, the real question is not being answered, and that is what do we do with this data? It's interesting that uh, we keep introducing new IOTs and collect this data layer and take a picture of that and uh, make sure you plug this and calibrate that. It's introducing so many processes and so many additional uh, steps and costs uh, to these farmers and they're not seeing a return on it. So instead of introducing a, a new layer or asking farmers to do something, what we do is we use this machine learning model to ingest all of the data that they've been collecting that they haven't derived value from, and uh, we return that in a real organized manner um, with the answers that they're looking for. Um, so that is what we do. Can you do uh, some of this on uh, Excel spreadsheet or a piece of paper for one particular farm, maybe, but the power of machine learning is we can do this at scale simultaneously. Alex, before, or Matt, before we get to uh, your part of the whole research process, Alex, I've got one more question for you about the machine learning process. When you're giving the computer all this data, all this information, how are you deciding what a grower needs to get back in return with all this data? Like you said, that's out there. Yeah, so some of the, some of the um, items that we're returning to the growers would be information on 
um, yield based on um, zone product performance, so how their hybrids are performing, how their biologicals are performing, how their um, you know, nutrients are performing, and of course Matt can get into details of what we've done there and the ROIs associated with them. Um, we're looking at profit by these specific zones and um, answering the big question on why are certain products performing the way they are and how can we optimize them. We're answering all of those questions. We are not specific to any uh, particular data layer. Uh, we are ingesting um, every data layer out there that the machines are collecting, that sensors are collecting. Um, Matt and I's background is both in remote sensing, uh, so we have a really good uh, knowledge base there. And uh, so, yeah, we're not, we are data agnostic, we're pulling it all in, processing it, and um, sharing the results. Very cool. And a big part of getting this type of data and making sure it's relevant for the grower is ground-truthing it. And Matt, I, I imagine that is kind of a large part of what it is you do. Can you tell us a little bit about the Arva Research Farm and what it is you've been working on? Absolutely. So we have, uh, we, we've implemented some of the latest and greatest technology in IoT sensors, uh, but it can be done with a lot less. Uh, however, we're looking at multiple ways to stream data, whether that's through MyJohnDeer.com, uh, Climate Field View, Farm Mobile, um, all the way to the, the field sensors, in-field sensors. And we take that information and collect it all and then crunch the data together and spit this out. Uh, and the ground truthing we're really doing is, is, is I like to say calibrated, but we're really taking a, a ground truth sample of what's happening. So even though we take a yield monitor, yield mapping system, that thing is calibrated, and we still do checks uh, manually throughout the field uh, to double check this and triple check it and to ensure that the data is as clean as it is. Um, we take a lot of uh, metagenomic data, which is uh, chemistry data we look at is like soil samples that everybody's used to taking. But metagenomic data goes farther into what's happening in the biome of the soil. Uh, so we've farmed uh, for quite a long time, and, and farmers can relate to this, or agronomists can re relate to this, where we might have a, a portion of the field where we have done the best that we can in today's world with uh, chemistry on the soil, placing the best hybrids there, et cetera. But we just need that little bit more. And that's what uh, part of the uh, metagenomic testing does for us is look at that. We grid sample the entire farm every year on one acre grids. Every field is Veris with EC and uh, dual EM data. And we have hydrology studies. We have DSMs, which is basically just elevation, uh, but high, high correlation elevations. And we look at all that and then take um, calibrated instruments to go out and validate all this uh, technology. So it's, it's, um, it's a lot of work but we're doing it on large scale. So instead of small plot trials like farmers are used to seeing, uh, we do it on, at field scales. And that really allows our data to come through and shine through on a more uh, understandable format. So Matt, 
do you also do i'm just want to make sure i'm understanding everything correctly here besides obviously showing then or ground truthing what you're doing to the farmers or producers that use your technology are you also giving recommendations or showing the trials that you're doing and saying hey this might work on your ground if you do xyz is that also a piece of the puzzle that you guys are working on absolutely we have uh, our scientists and I think other scientists will accumulate that there's approximately 187 to 192 microclimates across the U.S. And that number is arguable, but basically what it means is this hybrid did really well in my area, but it didn't do as well in somebody else's area. And what we're doing is we're taking like soil data, performance data, and clustering these to create performance zones and ground types that we can then use across large-scale operations. Say, if, if your ground type and your zone matches these chemistry, biology, yield, this hybrid, this biological, this seed treatment, uh, this is your best, I don't want to use the word concoction, but it, it really is, this is the best recipe uh, for that recommendation. So we, we will do not only quantity of prescriptions like we're used to in this, but also product. So it's, it's product and quantity recommendations. So if I am a manufacturer looking to, or, or an ag supplier looking to get my product out there, um, do I contact Arv and say, hey, can you guys run this in your trials and see where it performs? Or do you rely on your growers to bring forward and say, hey, you know, we're looking at X product. Can you try it this year at field scale? What does that process look like? How do you select which products you're truthing on the farm? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. It's a combination of, you know, localized retailers um, or, or manufacturers. We have quite a few manufacturers are contacting us right now, which is just great, and we've set up the trials with them. So once we collaborate that data or, or plan that data or that uh, trial plot out, then um, we keep it very structured just like you'd be running a test so that all that information is then and then crunched and, and moved on from there. So we don't double up on trials. Uh, each trial is, is its own trial. So for example, we would not do a seed trial and then also do a biological trial in that same field. Um, we, we want to try to keep it as, as separate as possible so that the controls are there and that information is, is kept as true and pure as we can. Absolutely. It's, it's almost like a third party verification of sorts. Absolutely. You so as you look at the future of what you guys are doing, I mean, this is really hot right now. I've seen a lot of, you know, independent agronomists doing this type of thing on a smaller scale. And obviously you're just doing it at a much larger scale. What other pieces of the puzzle do you see as part of Arva Intelligence's pathway, I guess, here for the future? Well, in the future, what's really interesting to me is already we're understanding what products are performing where and why. And the next step is if we can understand that, answer those questions, then we can actually come up with the genetic recipes that work in specific areas. So when, say, an OEM or retailer is advertising a, let's say, a seed hybrid, and they say, this will give you an average eight-yield uh, pump 
it's a it's a pretty wide spread. If you've ever looked at those graphs, the left side might be a negative 20, and the right side of the graph might be a uh, plus 30. By using uh, our machine learning model and all the data that we're collecting, we can narrow that down for those specific microclimates to where your your average is going to be much tighter. It might be okay. Let's kick out that whole left side of the graph. Figure out where this product works. Uh, that yields between a, a 20 bushel bump and a 30 bushel bump, and we're going to market this product to that specific microclimate. So marketing is improved, logistics is improved for the OEMs and the retailers, and the farmers are being uh, marketed products that uh, have a much higher uh, yield return, profitability return in their backyard. So let's talk yeah. a little bit. If I am an OEM or if I am a farmer, how do I get involved with Arva? How do I bring this technology to bear on my operation? Yeah, we uh, we are partnering with trusted advisors across the country, and trusted advisors can be a, a retailer, they can be an OEM. Um, they're normally the group of of, of people that are working directly with a grower. So that could be an independent crop consultant. Um, and we take that, uh, take our, our platform to them to help manage their clients and customers, uh, place products better, uh, do, do their own trials, and let the data speak for itself. And through that, uh, you know, it, it can be very profitable for growers uh, to go with that. And as we look to the future, the trusted advisor role is, is going to become more important. And whether that's the equipment dealer or the, the Furt and Chem guy or the independent agronomist, those, as farms grow and farmers have to become more farm CEOs, having those trusted advisors around the table is critical to the success of the farm. Absolutely. Well, gentlemen, before we let you go, if we've got growers or retailers interested in learning more information, how can they get a hold of you guys? So they can contact us online at uh, arvintelligence.com. Uh, we have a website and info link there, and um, we, we try to answer them as quick as possible, but that's the best way to get a hold of us. And uh, call us. We'd, we'd love to discuss opportunities and, and how we could work together to improve the profitability of their customers. Awesome. Well, Alex and Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. Our pleasure. Thank you. Sure appreciate it. All right. Well, big thanks, Starva, for taking the time to chat with us. It is cool to see the uh, the amount of technology coming around to work for us on American farms. It's fascinating. It certainly is, Mike. It certainly is. All right. Well, listeners, uh, stay tuned. If you want to get caught up on any of the past technology we have highlighted here on the program, be sure to visit the website at agnewsdaily.com. You can see all our past Tech Tuesday episodes right there. And be sure to connect with us on social media. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for Ag News Daily, and we'll be there. With that, Delaney, should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.